today, your challenge is keeping me entertained. I only had an hour nap today, which you know is not long enough for me. <laughs> I, I do. I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> they are uh, not down for the count, but down for the, you know, almost down for the count. A long time. A long yeah. time. I accidentally slept like for four hours the other day. I did a four hour nap, which was stupid. Fuck. I was just comfy. all right i will try to keep you regaled with the tale that is the collapse of the great hero or one of the great heroes on the world historical stage the soviet union pour one out for the big guy yeah uh i don't know about you but it's appropriately spooky uh, in my (laughs) neighborhood it's all rainy and shit Oh, yeah, it's rainy here, too. We flew back today, and it was, you know, you ever fly back in the rainy weather, and you're always like, God damn, these, these plants are, are shaking. I would rather not be doing this. <laughs> yeah, how the fuck do they let us go up and down in these things when we had to pierce through the clouds and just like, you know. <laughs> but we made it. For better or for worse, we're here. All right, so, yeah, we're talking about the fall and the the fall slash overthrow of the Soviet Union. Mm, I think that's an important term. Okay. Yeah. Because there's just, there are so many moving parts. Your imperative is to stop me as we're going through this. And say, hold on. Who the fuck is that? Okay, great. I'm so good at that. <laughs> or hold on. What are we talking about? Or whatever. Because like there, there are really so many moving parts. Okay, great. I'm, I'm great at playing the fool. yeah and i'm seriously trying to simplify it as i i think not only as much as possible but probably too much to to like give us a story to give us something that we can like wrap our heads around and, and figure out what even is happening to get you and get the audience into kind of the vein of this when did the soviet union fall 1990 it was your fault 91. It was your fault. <laughs> okay. See, we're already kind of entering this ambiguity. Yeah. 1991 is the official dissolution of the Soviet Union. We'll get into the exact dates and everything and the, you know, tragic references therein later. But the, the kind of conclusion of our story is actually going to come a couple years later in 1993. Mm, shit. Maybe it was my fault. Yeah. You're partially on the hook for this shit. <laughs> shit <laughs> it's just such a uh drawn out it, it's it's a uh a tragic end to a heroic figure you know i don't know somewhat tragic in its own sense of it. it's not always doing the right thing yeah we've talked yeah, about we've that a lot you know? see other episodes <laughs> yeah but uh but let's get into let's let's start to get into it starting with kind of what are, what are your what do you bring into the table here well, I did see a post the other day about that one guy who was stuck on the ISS and like didn't have a country, so was stuck there for like four times as long as he was supposed to be. This is the guy that went up as a Soviet, comes down as a Russian, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is cool. Like that's weird, right? Just to be able to go up as anything, come <laughs> down as anything, like it's cool. Like, did he like have to get new documents and shit? Like, I have so many questions. <laughs> No, yeah, right. Like, because previously the Soviet Union had worked with the scientific agencies of, say, Cuba and 
you know, other aligned countries and stuff. So you would imagine there was some sort of protocol by which you could be like, well, fuck, if y'all don't want me, just send me to Cuba. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, those guys like me. <laughs> we sent those guys up back when we were cool. So just send me to them. Um, Other than that, man, I don't got a lot. I, I, I have kind of what we talked about at the tail end of last week's episode, which is kind of the accepted or I guess given narrative of okay, you know, Stalin was a real asshole. And then you had a series of leaders who tried to loosen things up and, and, you know, quote unquote, open up the country to the West. And they did that more and more until it busted open, basically. Uh, You had Mr. Gorbachev tearing down this wall. And (laughs) the most perfect impression. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was good. uh, Thank you. Uh, And you had, yeah, you had the Pizza Hut thing. (laughs) <laughs> pretty pretty great summary i think turn in that essay <laughs> right that sorry that does sound a little bit like um chat gpt type like the <laughs> conclusion of that you know and then pizza hut the end right <laughs> <laughs> but that's a kind of a good starting point of okay what is the received western understanding of and we are not trying to make you feel stupid listener you're coming to this with the same or less or more slightly whatever knowledge of this however you're coming to it we're not judging like that was us yeah totally like that is exactly what we were taught probably that was what we were taught and you know you you kind of get a little bit of glimmer here and there of differences and stuff like that but but seriously through all the way through like researching this episode i'm still sitting there with like kind of a basic knowledge of like well this of course and then you know it's um it's a lot to get through There, there there's a lot of misconceptions so we'll start kind of up at the top up at the beginning of what was the soviet union not what was it like, because we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. you know, sort of it's some of the myths revolving around it. And I, I do think that's worth talking about a little bit or addressing a little bit in terms of like the Soviet Union when we get to this point. The big picture thing, I think, is what were the problems facing the Soviet Union by the time we get to 1985? So 1985 is when our main character, for better or worse, Mikhail Gorbachev comes to the scene. So we want to talk about, okay, well, what was the Soviet Union like by that time? And I think by that time, the Soviet Union had built into itself over the course of its historical development, some problems that needed addressing. One of the big things is stagnation. So we know of this concept. We, we, you know, read Parenti, uh, Michael Parenti's concept of siege socialism. That's when like shit is so bad. You're just doing whatever you can to get by. Yeah. And so one way to think of that, of course, is since you're having to fight off the rest of the imperial world all the time, you know, the United States, all its lackeys, all their military might and covert might and everything come to bear on you. That is a huge drain on resources, right? And, you have to pump enough of your resources to counteract them out on the global front and also probably be mean enough to your people domestically. 
to make sure that they're not raising up spies in your midst. So that's one thing. Liberties at home take a hit simply from having to do that. Another thing is economically, and it's related to siege socialism, but economically, you are trying to keep up with the United States despite all of their, you know, their blockade of everything you're trying to do, them and the rest of the Western world. And one big change I think that happens that's important is that when you shift from Stalin to Khrushchev in the, in the 60s, you have a big shift from someone who was dedicated to the rapid industrialization of the Soviet Union. Stalin, not a nice guy, we'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not my fave, that's for sure. He's not super pleasant. He's not like, look, I really just want us to chill and hang out. <laughs> okay, he's serious. I mean, he wants to get everything, I mean... He's a hardliner, you know, he, let, let, let's get ourselves up to that. And, and yeah, you have to curtail a few liberties or whatever, but he thinks it's worth it, that sort of thing. And, hey, to his credit, the Nazis didn't win. So yeah. <laughs> not the greatest guy. But when he cedes the floor, then Khrushchev says, let's try to get as close as we can to the United States. Like, like partnership-wise? Not partnership-wise. I will grant him this. Khrushchev still is the one who's beating his shoe on the desk at the UN <laughs> and telling the United States, you, you know, you're telling us all this shit, but your children will be communists. And he's like saying, like, basically, we're going to win. You know? Oh, my God. I he love is confrontational. That. I will okay. grant him this. But he pictures the Soviet Union as beating the U.S. at its own game. Mm, at its own game, though. I don't want to play that game. Well, he's saying we could do more consumer goods than you can. We're a big country, right? We can produce more agricultural goods than you can. We're a big country. And so his, you know, his conception is a little bit skewed in that way of like, given the United States industrial base, yeah, it makes sense that they can produce what they can produce. But like he's saying, even though we have not really quite risen to that level of industrial base, we're still going to produced to that level and we're going to produce the same amount of consumer goods as you can produce for your people for our people that's the ground he wants to compete on all right man go for it i guess he does go for it it does end up being kind of this falling short of saying let's try to shift our industrial capacity from a focus on heavy industry of industrializing to get that industrial base up to the point where we can start doing that. He jumps the gun and he starts yeah. saying, let's start trying to produce as much we can with what we got. We're not there yet. Yeah. Cause I mean like industrialization, I mean, that's such a vague and broad term, I think for a lot of people, but if you're trying to break it down to like, okay, I'm trying to make more consumer goods. Mm -hmm. That means you have to have, all of your transportation networks figured out. That means you have to have like probably a heavy plastics industry, which is like probably very complicated to set up. I imagine uh, like there's <laughs> all sorts of things you have to, like you have to figure out agriculture if you're doing lots of like packaged food. And there's just a lot like you, it, you can't really skip that step. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's his big fuck up to his credit. Khrushchev, I think is, is someone who he does at least get ushered the door before he's, dead you know so mm -hmm. he is able later on in life to be like yeah sorry up. <laughs> <laughs> <My beat. laughs> yeah i i mean i do think he was 
a Soviet at heart. I do think he was doing what he thought should be done. I think he was wrong. And yeah. it kind of fucks things up in the sense that it gets Soviets, uh, it gets the Soviet government, not necessarily regular people, but people, uh, but the, the government in the mindset of how can we best satisfy people's needs as consumers rather than provide for people's needs in general, this sort of like socialist sense of providing for people and get them more in this market mindset of providing for customers. Yeah. Cause those are different needs like for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that initially and in China and Mao's China will kind of critique this and say, you know, Khrushchev has gone off in this revisionist, adventurism sort of thing that's kind of what they're criticizing there is like this is not what you're supposed to be fighting for your people this is kind of a deviation from the needs of the masses yeah like stay the course you're gonna get to a more comfortable place but like i think about it a lot in terms of the future like we're gonna have to unlearn the consumer mindset like quite a bit like yeah you won't have a million different options for things in stores but like you'll have high quality options and you'll have also they're free, you know, <laughs> yeah. it'll be, it's just a different way of approaching those things and a different way of, of valuing things. You're going to have to have limitations just, I mean, ecologically like, <laughs> yeah, like we're going to have to learn how to like fix things, men clothing, you know, actually fix electronics when they break and I'll just fucking throw it in a landfill. Yeah. But I think flip side of that is we're going to be I don't know, more appreciative, more useful, or what do you call this? Efficient, maybe. Yeah, society. yeah. <laughs> so these are some of the the long-term sort of problems the Soviet Union is dealing with. Another key problem, aside kind of from the economy, we'll get back to it in a little bit, that was kind of laid in the soil of the Soviet Union is the problem of nationalism. Ooh, okay. That's, that's a pretty thorny issue. <laughs> It is. And the Soviet Union, just its name, I mean, gives you this understanding that there are so many different components of it. It is a union of Soviet socialist republics. Yeah, yeah. So let's be clear. In case we have any newer listeners, hi. <laughs> the Soviet Union is not just Russia, <laughs> like right. what we know as Russia today. The Soviet Union contains multiple... Uh, I guess what would be termed satellite states is, is kind of a term they were using back then, but it contains like a huge area. Yeah. So when you're talking about the Soviet Union, it's important to note that <laughs> a lot of times people say, oh, this is Soviet Russia. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that would be like saying, well, that's American Virginia. And that, that's, <laughs> that's American that's Texas. Where the capital is. Yeah, it's, it's maybe it's the main stage or something like that or the main region, but it's not like all of it. You shouldn't mm -hmm. refer to the whole country that way. <laughs> I guess from the American's perspective, it's easy to say when you're looking at the USSR, you should look at the republics within it, one of which is Russia, Ukraine, you know, all these different constituent republics and say, well, those are basically states. You also had autonomous oblasts and all these different divisions of it, whatever. And you can say, oh, these are all like kind of, you know, like the U.S. has states and territories and it's mm -hmm. like that. You know, that's 
an easy, inaccurate sort of way of <laughs> saying that's kind of what it's like. That's fine. The issue had been in the Soviet Union really since the revolution. I mean, really since Lenin and Stalin were dealing with this was how to integrate all of these different territories into the Soviet project. And they're dealing with it from the point of view of uh, coming about basically inheriting an empire from the czar, you know, czarist Russia, they weren't concerned with how are we going to make people feel good about being part of czarist Russia. <laughs> They're like too fucking bad. You're part of czarist Russia. They were just imperialists, right? Uh, and they were just like, we're taking over this. How can we extract from it? And so when the Soviets come to power, it's like, well, we'd like for them to be in our brotherhood too. How can we make sure that they're part of that? Like, how can we make sure that they are equals and that they feel this Soviet impulse to communize their areas? You know, how can we uh, both spread the good news of communism, but also not be patriarchal jackasses? Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously a pretty big subject, but let's just say you were in one of those regions. Um, let's say like one of like the Baltic areas or something like you would have representatives and stuff. I mean, or would you be like mostly autonomous or like, I mean, I'm sure it depends on the region. It depends on the time. Like that's a big question. It definitely does. So I will say from the, uh, in terms of looking at the Baltics, they don't get much of a say. Mm, okay. The Baltic States essentially are in your most charitable terms, liberated in your most negative terms, conquered. Um, during World War Two, okay. You know, when I mean, you got you can you can raise some pretty easy questions, and you can raise some pretty maybe uneasy questions for the people of the Baltics. But liberated from whom and conquered from whom, yeah, are pretty important. I think alternatives raise in terms of well, who did you like in that, you know, in that choice of people, and they can say, oh well, I like the liberal democracy and whatever, and well, who was standing for that at the time? I, don't, I like was that really a viable option was anyone putting this forth for you like was this possibly a road you could have taken and and we're getting off into historical weeds but what i want to say is the baltics are by and large when we see this story anti-soviet union pretty much throughout really okay and so like you know yeah the the same process happens there of you know their people go through the same sort of economic situation of you know a equalization of rich and poor and everything else that we see in Soviet societies. But as soon as things start pulling apart, the Baltic States are like, yep. Yeah. We want to pull apart. <laughs> They're like, bye. Yeah. And you look at other places, not the same, like the, the, especially central Asia and everything. This is not, they're not trying to break away. Okay. Interesting. So do you, was, I mean, back to the, what we were talking about, which is nationalism. Do you think nationalism had a larger role to play in the Baltics? Uh, I think it did. And I think it does not just there, but in other places too, to a little bit lesser extent, just because they're not as, they don't want to break away as, as wholeheartedly. It's a little more divided. But yeah, the essential pattern I think here is that the Soviet Union initially has kind of a line following Stalin's initial line 
of let's foster national sentiment, you know, in these disparate places where it can be used in an anti-imperialist way. So let's kind of foster that as a way of building socialism and saying, Hey, like we're, you know, here, we're the Soviet Union. We just overthrew those assholes that were coming in here and telling you, you had to do Russian language shit all the time. And we're not only overthrowing them, we're going to give, like, we're giving universal education, we're giving universal healthcare, universal everything. And, and like, we're giving that to you in your language. And we're going to educate you and literacize your whole population in your language, too. And, like, do that, right? And spread that as, like, a big thing. And eventually, that gave way to more of a, and this kind of ebbs and flows throughout the history of the Soviet Union, but this Russification Mm, okay of saying we don't really want that so much actually no. i'd rather you know like russia is great russia is the forefront there are all the people all the brotherhood of the soviets and all that but russia's the primary thing okay that sucks because i was just about to say like comparing the original approach to like imperialist projects where you know you have like the what are they called? The the school programs and stuff in, in Canada with like indigenous people, like completely decimating like native languages. The death of a language is a really common symptom of imperialism. Yeah. Yeah. In the U.S. they had Native American institutions like that of, of trying to assimilate people and the Dawes program and everything else. Um, that's ends up being not to that necessary extent, but ends up being the general program is let's move more Russian speakers, Russian people into these areas. Let's educate them in the Russian language and let's bring them into the Soviet fold. Ooh, okay. That sounds a little settlery to me. Yeah. And, and again, different leaders and different factions kind of follow different uh, varieties of that. But, it doesn't get back to its radical roots pretty much ever. That sucks. Yeah. So that's that's another thing that essentially after Lenin and Stalin were kind of, well, were very intensely grappling with that issue. Uh, subsequent Soviet leaders don't. They're like, it's cool. We're just going to not. <laughs> yeah. They sort of say, ah, let's drag them along. It'll, it'll be fine. Oh, that sucks. And it's not, you know, it's to varying intensities, but it's just no longer like a conscious issue to where it festers and to where you can see the development of a nationalism that is opposed definitionally to communism to where it says the communists are the ones who send us Russians. They are the ones who educate our children in Russian they are the ones who do not want us to have a national identity because they don't care about that at all. And so it kind of allows nationalists in that area or people who are kind of inclined to see that as gives them an organizing post to say, do you want, you know, uh, you know, do you want to be proud of your country? Do you want to be a proud Kazakh? Do you want to be a proud Uzbek? Do you want to be a proud Tajik? Whatever um, to organize around that and, also to uh, gives them free reign to say to marry that with anti-communism to say look at these communists this is what they do 
And that nationalism that, like Stalin said, could be used to organize people to the left and say this, you know, organize them toward communism is not, it's dragged to the right. And it's like, no, this is nationalist. This, the, this is what we stand for. This is where you stand opposed to the communists this is what they do. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say, like, it doesn't necessarily have to fall on those lines. Like, no. you, there is a way to, like, the original approach of doing both communism and, I mean, I'm not a big fan of nationalism, but, like, it's okay. I am okay with pride in where you come from. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about with I, yeah. Vietnam, for example. Like, that's national liberation. And national yeah, liberation is I'm sort totally of fine nationalism. With that. And that's, yeah, that's what we're talking about, you know? Totally. And, like... There's ways to honor that, and there's ways to do that without becoming anti-communist, obviously. So, yeah, that just sucks that that association is ended up the way it did. Yeah. So that's another underlying current in the huge Soviet project going on before we get up to 1985. Another big thing is, in terms of the economy, we talked about the economic problems of shifting the productive like focus we talked about the drain on in in terms of liberties at home and the economic sort of siege situation you also uh have the situation of oil oil prices uh in the late 70s to early 80s uh, that you initially had the oil crisis where Prices rose dramatically where Jimmy Carter went out there and he wore the sweater and he said, Americans, you've got to consume less energy and uh, we, we have a crisis of confidence here and all this sort of stuff. It's like <laughs> consume less energy, all that sort. A fun joke you can make if someone farts is to call them Jimmy Farter and say that they caused the gas crisis. Just throwing it out there. Oh, <laughs> nice. A little yeah, late for the holiday one. season, but next time your family gathers, there you go. <laughs> After the oil crisis, you had the oil glut, where oil prices took a tumble. I have a question. Yeah. Is this at all related to, like, kind of the, like, Arab Spring stuff? Because, like, you had a bunch of countries nationalizing oil, and then you had a bunch of people being like, JK, let's not do that. It's uh, quite a bit earlier than the Arab Spring stuff. So, Arab Spring, you're talking about, like, 20... 10 ish oh no maybe i'm not using the right term when shit in iran went down i guess like the 70 is that 79 yeah you're thinking okay that's contemporaneous with it yeah that it's like oil crisis iran hostage crisis oil glut right after mm. kind of but it does have to do with international players uh for example in the 80s so once ronald reagan becomes president uh, he actually takes great pains to move from the oil crisis, energy crisis, to the oil glut. How does he do that? So much so that you might be like, Ronnie, were you like doing something here? Uh, <laughs> so here's how he does it, you say. Um, he did some arms deals. Okay, yeah, that is how he does it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> listeners of our show uh, are aware that St. Ronald Reagan was not um, you know, just the upstanding right wing patron saint of uh, the free market that we piss on his grave. Well, know him as in the United States, yeah. So he uh, did Iran Contra in terrible ways. He also did arms deals with the Saudis, 
He sold them planes and stinger missiles uh, in order to get better oil deals, basically get them to produce more oil and to sell it to him for cheaper. Fuck. He also put pressure on OPEC, probably through the Saudis. I don't know the details of it, but to lower prices per barrel from initially from $34 a barrel to $29 a barrel, just measly five bucks a barrel, no big deal, uh, to $12 a barrel. Jesus, that's cheap. So the Soviet Union, which from the oil crisis to the oil glut had managed to like retool its economy to produce a whole bunch more oil so that they would mm-hmm. not have to be suffering from the negative effects of the oil crisis and everything. I mean, it's a huge country. They got huge oil fields. It makes sense for them mm-hmm. to be like, well, fuck, let's produce domestic. Do our own thing. No one's going to sell it to us. Yeah. Then uh, the the oil economy turns against them. They end up losing t- like $10 billion a year from this shit. Holy shit. Because they get completely undermined. Damn. Okay. We're, wait, were they selling to other places too? For a while, yeah. They were in oil exports. Wow. Okay. Country too. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how much that had to do with it of like, well, this will also fuck them over. That'd be great. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't that played no part of Ronald Reagan's (laughs) um, foreign policy. No. (laughs) Uh, Another big thing, I think, to put into the mix of this is Western propaganda. Oh, yeah. That guy. He's always here. (laughs) He just lives here. (laughs) Yeah, this is um, I I mean, I, I don't. I, I hesitate to put a, a concrete value on exactly how much this was. 5%. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> this is 5.7% responsible for the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, <laughs> we ran the numbers. It's because, okay, so what I'm talking about here is that the younger generation of Soviet leaders, and, and it's hard to draw the line of where that is, like to what extent were different generations or different you know, leaders and broadly speaking, how were they influenced by this? But like what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that people were convinced within the Soviet Union that instead of correcting the Marxist Leninist line in favor of addressing material conditions in a more realistic way and addressing you know the material conditions the needs of of the people drawing them away from that toward imagining themselves or or like like imagining that just the idea or the you know following the ideal of liberalizing economic conditions and doing more liberal political reforms aping what europe and sort of social democratic countries were doing sort of doing kind of a cargo cult version of if we do these things, then wealth will happen. That sort of, uh, I think influence spread from Western propaganda. I'm not necessarily, uh, there's two aspects of it. One is like the intellectual propaganda, the, the sort of like academic side of things. Economists, All the economists. Yeah, yeah fuck these, those guys. <laughs> these guys saying, you know, because they, I mean, were they, they were not, they were not banning the Soviet economists for coming to Western economics forums and all that sort of shit. Like mm-hmm. they would show up and, you know, sure, they'd go back to Moscow and say, well, what we learned from the degenerate 
American, you know, things, whatever. <laughs> but they were like being exposed to these ideas and talked up and everything. And everybody was telling them, oh, this is good. But I also mean like in a different way, maybe the Hollywood angle of like. The culture. These are Americans. Mm-hmm. They can wear jeans. They can drive <laughs> fast cars. They, you know, they had the finest booze and all this. Yeah, all this sort of shit of like selling you. What you don't understand necessarily is the upper middle class version of being an American versus just like, this is how America is, man. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's this real notion that like literally everyone in America has those things. Yeah. And it was, I think, very appealing to the class of people within the Soviet Union who was able to access that, which was not mostly regular people. You know, it was mostly policy setters. Oh, you mean like the people higher up one of those things? Yeah, I mean, the people who were able to access, you know, American Hollywood depictions mm. of, you know, what the West was like was mostly strivers and people in uh, people in government positions, people in sort of more privileged situations. I mean, like okay, the regular okay. Soviet citizen didn't have that much of an idea of it, really. Really? Because there was like, you know, such a cultural embargo situation. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, for a long time there was. Yeah. Now that itself starts to open up with Gorbachev's reforms, which we're about to get into. But okay. But I guess suffice it to say that basically the younger generation of Soviet leaders ends up convinced that like we got to sort of start aping what the West is doing if we want to end up like the West. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Is like. I could see an argument being made of like, hey, like, our people want more consumer goods or, hey, you know, could we give back a little bit of of personal freedom, stuff like that. Like that, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, but like if it if if that is your just like a stopgap or like a I'm still on board, but I would like X, Y, Z. But it seems like it's more like. I'm looking over here and I want to end up over there. You know, like I'm that the end goal has changed for some of these people. It seems like I think so. It, it's not like a compromisey kind of position of like, let's do a little more social democracy kind of stuff. It's like, no, let's, let's go fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're really on to something by bringing up this point because it's because we're like innocent communists looking at this. <laughs> We're like looking at it like, <laughs> come on, everyone's like trying to figure out how to be the best communist they can be. Yeah, and yeah. How did they make this tragic error? But the sad truth of the situation is that by 1985, there was a lot of opportunism that had set in to the party in the Soviet Union by this point. And what I mean to say is uh, that if you... I guess this is another winding back, but if you, you know, look back at Khrushchev or whatever, you know, Stalin was like, Hey, periodically we're just going to look at people and like, if they're assholes, if, if they should not be here, like, what are you doing here? Get out of the We're going to fire them. <laughs> yeah. And you know, some people, they found out you're working for a Western intelligence agency or they thought they were and they killed them, the yeah. burgess. Right. But a lot of people, they were just like, 
what are you doing here? And the person was like, I don't know. I wanted a job. And they were like, get the fuck out of the party. <laughs> this, this was also part of the great purpose of yeah. just kicking people out who were just there for money. Khrushchev did not want to do that. When Khrushchev rolls back that, he rolls it back to a rotating system. Basically, he puts in term limits and says, every once in a while, we're going to just toss out part of the party and you just kind of rotate through that. Okay. And this was okay, but when Brezhnev comes to power in like the 70s, he's like, guys, weren't y'all tired of being tossed out every once in a while? Like, let's eh, do away with that. Great. No term limits. A thing that has never bit us in the ass. His whole thing was stability. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. This is one of the reasons that Gorbachev ends up coming to power, is that Brezhnev was all about stability. He was like, let's not kick anybody out. If you're in power and you're good, you're going to stay in there. And so this leads to a generation of party members who are good at working the system. Mm, Okay. So because you don't have either kind of the uh, (laughs) intense, but sometimes necessary uh, (laughs) works of the purge or of, of rotating with term limits, you just, you have the Senate. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you have a bunch of old corrupt assholes to the extent to which when we you know repurpose the term of gerontocracy to talk about the united states this was uh, the og i have not yeah i haven't really studied the etymology of it but i do know that people were talking about in terms of gerontocracy the soviet union really uh, okay. after brezhnev dies in like 80 something he's succeeded by yuri andropov like the head of the KGB or something like that for like a year old motherfucker dies succeeded <laughs> by Antonin Chernenko for like two years. I was just about to ask you if you could name every single person that was in charge for the last bit. <laughs> Sounds like you can. <laughs> yeah. So when he dies, that's when Gorbachev comes to power in large part because they're like, who is the youngest dude we have on the ball of here so like, he won't keep dying yeah it's like i'm so tired dude. of all these like ceremonies these swearing ins Ugh. yeah and that so that's that's a big part of it is shifting to that young person but i think going back to the allowing people to kind of make careers here and, and everything and not turning over and not delving into why are you here is that it gives rise to careerists, and this is, you know, maybe leaning a little bit on an old kind of Trotskyist criticism of the Soviet Union, saying there's this ossified bureaucracy sort of thing Yeah, that's on. what I was going to say, bureaucracy. Right? And to not to leave anyone out, I mean, Mao kind of criticized in the Cultural Revolution sort of stuff of like attack the, the government, you know, bureaucrats who are, just holding their offices and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Soviet Union very much was not doing that. They were like mm. letting him be. And so you end up not just, hey, we're going to nominate young Gorbachev, but like what did Gorbachev stand for? And what did a lot of the people who rose through the ranks of the Communist Party said, I am a communist. I'm going to fight for it. <laughs> when we come to Gorbachev's time in power and we see the types of people who come out of the Communist Party to back what he's doing and then go further than that and say, I'm a right wing this, I'm a liberal that, but had been lifelong communists. And we're going to be like, what was the communist party doing? Yeah. Yeah. So like just completely destroying it for what it means to be part of the communist party. Yeah. It was kind of so big tent that it didn't mean anything. It was so easy to be a communist that nobody was a communist. That's a big part of it too. I think should have had a party split. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. 
All right. So that's, that's where we're getting to when we're talking about, okay, here's Gorbachev coming into power in 1985. And you got to understand when he's coming into power, you're looking at Soviet Union. All right. Sorry. What is the, as an American, Gorbachev comes to power. He starts doing all these reforms. What's his explanation? Like what's, what's the received instruction that we get? on why Gorbachev had to do all the stuff in the Soviet Union. What was so, what was going on there? People were demanding it. They wanted freedom and they wanted fucking McDonald's. And he realized capitalism was right. Capitalism, of course, was right because (laughs) the Soviet Union was doing so bad. I mean, it was like falling apart by 1985. I mean, let's be honest, right? Um, If you look at the period of 1950, 1975, industrial production in the Soviet Union was growing at a higher rate than the United States was. Oh, damn. Okay. By the time Gorbachev takes office in 1985, it was a leader in oil production, gas production, tractor production, the production of potatoes, milks and milk and eggs. Damn. John Durinsky. <laughs> yeah. Them tractors. <laughs> uh, it had in the 40 years before Gorbachev took power, 0% inflation. That's insane. Oh, my God. I just... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah. I mean, and we've talked about some of them, just the merits of Soviet society before. I mean, no one employment because the government's just like, here, have a job. Here you go. (laughs) You're looking at the income gap where we're sitting at like 400 to one in terms of comparing (laughs) the CEOs to regular or to the average worker. You're looking at 10 to one there. 10, just 10. 10 to 1. Oh my God. 10. You could like hang out with your boss at like the same restaurant. Yeah. And it wouldn't be weird to be like, hey, that's my, like, it wouldn't be like, what the fuck is he doing here? Right. If you went to get drinks with your boss afterward, you could totally buy him around and it'd be fun. Yeah. And not just like your boss. I mean, like the CEO boss. Yeah. Like, what's up? (laughs) What's up, head of like machinery? (laughs) Right. And also through your union, if you tried to fire your buddy for, you know, showing up drunk or late or whatever, like you could veto that shit. You yeah, could get you him should, fired for being an asshole in other ways. Oh, you know? Yes. Uh, you had free education. You had free health care. You had how many days a year of vacation on average do you think the Soviet citizen had in the in the nationwide Crushing. gulag that was the Soviet Union? I'm going to guess 30 Pretty close. A little bit overshot. 21. Oh, okay. I was, I was being ambitious. 21 is Three weeks. pretty good. That's pretty fucking good. Uh, I have not checked mine for this year because I don't want to depress myself. How many of you guys have three weeks of paid vacation on average? I don't. As a te- any of you teachers out there, you do not have three weeks of paid vacation. <gasps> you have three, you know, however many months or whatever the uh-huh. uh, vacation yeah, is of yeah. unpaid vacation because you're paid per day. So That's true. Shit. Oh my god! Your rent, your rent's probably like a third of your budget. Uh, or... That's cute. It's now like half, I think. Okay, well, for, uh, for most people <laughs> in the Soviet Union, it was two to three percent of a family's budget. Two to three percent. Oh my god! You could do so much cool shit after you pay rent. But then they're gonna smack you around with utilities, right? Which were around four to five percent of your. Oh my god! Not, I'm sorry, not forty-five, but like four, four comma to five percent. Yeah. What the fuck are you going to do with the rest of your money? Like, (laughs) (laughs) 
This is the economy that Gorbachev was inheriting, an economy that produced about 80% of the United States industrial output. The Soviet Union was all, I mean, not on par, let's be honest, mm-hmm. but it was Pretty not close. in the dumpster. As no, people it was like not to like say. a fucking, yeah, like barely surviving everyone's eating gruel or whatever. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's, that's what we receive. Is that mm-hmm. they were like on death's door. Gorbachev tried to save him, but no, you know, nobly, but could not. It's all bread lines and, ugh. Yeah. But that's when Gorbachev takes power. 1985, they've just had two really old dudes die pretty <laughs> quickly. They did a big health check on him. <laughs> and the thing with Gorbachev is, why is he sitting in the Central Committee? Why is he sitting in the Politburo? Why is he, why is he up there? Because this dude was a straight up charisma build. This guy Ooh. was barred extraordinary. <laughs> okay. So did he just tell him what they wanted to hear? Like, oh yeah, I'm super communist. Love it here. I will take him at his word. He does seem to come from his youth as a communist. He's a communist. He, you know, he has his own, you know, beliefs, idiosyncrasies, whatever. I didn't dive too much into his autobiography stuff, but like, he all along does seem to think in terms of saving the Soviet Union, being a good member of the Communist Party. At some point in kind of his mid-adulthood, sort of, he's not up to power yet, but he does kind of sort of get into more of a reformist mindset of things of like, what well, if we do more social democracy type things? He's never a liberal, but still he comes into this like, Let's do more market reforms, this style of stuff. He does He does kind of come into that point of view. But he, like, literally nobody gets any whiff of that. That's only in his autobiography stuff, only in his, like, personal. He's, like, s- super close to both Chernenko and Andropov, his two predecessors, like they're both like, oh, this this guy's gonna be. They vouch for him and shit. Andropov thinks he's gonna be his successor, but the Politburo's <laughs> like, no, we need someone experienced. Let's put Chernenko in there. Chernenko kicks it like two years mm-hmm. in, yeah. and then they're like, okay, fine, we'll go with the young boy. That's how close. Like that's he's he's cultivating close relationships with these like hardline Marxist Leninists. While being in his core, in his beliefs, this like more reformer type. I again, because he's pure charisma build is my explanation. Yeah, yeah. Dude knows what to say and who to say it to. <laughs> yeah, he's the Lyndon Johnson of the Soviet Union. <laughs> Tell him what they want to hear, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so he ends up coming to power in 1985. They say, we need a young guy. And he's the young guy. And he kind of pretty quickly goes about setting things the way he wants. One big thing is getting the Politburo, the cent- kind of the cabinet, you could think of it. It's not a good equivalent, but it's like the main Ministries. political leadership. So yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. And he starts convincing people. He's like, bro, you're old. I mean... I'm not that old. I hope to be as wise as you are when I'm I'm as old as you are. But like, what if you, you know, retire, you know, and starts convincing people like, get the fuck out so I can replace you with newer people. With hot young bods. Yeah. And so he puts the hot young bods in there. (laughs) Obviously, hot young Gorbachev minded Mm -hmm. bods. 
Reformist bods. Another argument he kind of makes is like, you're smart. You're great. I know you are. But like, let's set the example for future generation stuff. I want to, I know one of my big things is fighting like stagnation. You're a sharp mind, but like, I don't want all these old guys, you know, to be mm. you know, clogging it up. So like, let's, you know, young blood, that sort of thing. Well, let, let the young people take it from here. Yeah. And so he's, he's able to kind of, and publicly, another thing is his, he's, he leans big into the public fight of like, giving speeches and shit and going to the press and being like, I want to fight stagnation. So I want to bring new ideas and things. And, and then going to people and be like, isn't it crazy? The press, man. I mean, they're all about, <laughs> you, you, could, you know, you probably could take it easy in a DACA somewhere. You know, you just hang out and let them yell at somebody else for being an old guy. So anyway, he ends up replacing like half the Politburo with his shit. own. Dude, okay. Just works it over. In his early years, you do see kind of a, essentially, continuation. A slight improvement, perhaps, in some regards of economic growth, 2% economic growth, 5% productivity growth. It's not going nowhere. It's kind of fine. It's kind of good. Is that on trend with what was happening before, though? Like, to me, it begs the question of, like, when presidents are like, I've done X, Y, Z. And it's like, okay, how much of that was you and how much of that was already happening? Correct. It was okay, great. <laughs> not necessarily him. Still, he use he goes out there and tells everyone our country is still falling so far behind. We need reforms now. We need big changes. We need to do the big programs of Perestroika and Glasnost. All right, what the fuck does that mean? So I've heard these terms, right? I have. I don't know what they mean. All right, so the first one, perestroika. This is reform. Boo. Or, more literally, restructuring. Actually, I would give that a boo because, like, every fucking Tom, Dick, and Harry in a suit thinks that's what they need to do to a company when they get hired. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do some... Uh, we're going to do a reorg. Not downsizing, but right-sizing. <laughs> oh, I like that. Uh, we're going to give everyone new meaningless titles, and you're going to have to sit through like six meetings about it. Cool? Okay. Yeah, so he says, we're going to do some perestroika, we're going to do some glasnost. So these are often paired, and I think they're best paired to understand what's going on. So perestroika is restructuring, and glasnost is opening. Or another way to put it is transparency. Mm, okay, that could be good, but I bet it's not going to go the way I, I'd want it to go. Yeah, so Gorbachev's ideas here, perestroika is a essentially an economic reform of doing more free market style things. Uh, who asked for that? <laughs> Did like people want that? Uh, yes and no. Sure, okay. some people did want it. You know, um, people who thought the economy could be run more effectively and whatnot. Yeah, they they were, they were making arguments. Essentially, Western economists would make saying, mm -hmm. "Yeah, I heard this at this conference that our you know economy would be way better if you play we play by just an asshole's this. rules. You're gonna have to play an asshole game. Like, what the fuck do I care about GDP? That is a big <laughs> problem, I think, too. That I didn't mention earlier, but part of this whole Western propaganda thing, the intelligentsia side of it, is that. A lot of the capitalism supporters in the Soviet Union were kind of like capitalism supporters in the United States today. 
they look at a graph and they get horny. Yeah, and, and in doing <laughs> so, they imagine themselves as the ultimate winners in, you know, in a capitalist system or in, you know, in a more pure capitalist system in our sense, but like in a capitalist system in general, like they would be the ones who are rich and comfortable in a capitalist system, not really putting that global lens on it and saying like, Hey, I'm, I'm over here in Russia. Like, am I in the Imperial core? Like, even if I'm in the you know heights of my own society, am I even going to have the same shit as somebody in the U S or the, or Britain or whatever have like, yeah, we're the periphery, yeah. you know, what's and what's, like, what happens to everybody? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> you don't know where you're going to end up. You don't know where everybody's going to end up, but you know, like there's going to be losers in this and that sucks. Yeah. And you're like willing to let that happen. Ooh, what a gamble. Play stupid games, <laughs> win stupid prizes. <laughs> so he kind of outlines, oh, we've got to modify central planning. He kind of starts out slow in this, to be honest. But eventually he kind of just keeps going out there saying, we got to do more. We got to do more. We got to we got privatize more. We got to open things up more. There's a lot of different things he does. So one big thing is opening up the economy to cooperatives. Uh, specifically, so legally they're called cooperatives. Essentially, he's introducing privatization to the economy and saying that there can be some kind of quasi-private enterprise sort of stuff. And state-owned enterprises, we're going to cut the floor out from under these guys. So any state-owned enterprise, we used to say the government's going to order this much to provide for the people. Like, this is how much the people want. Well, however much the people want, we're just going to cut that in half. We're going to send that order to you of like, please produce half of what the people want so we can give it to them. Uh, the other half is going to be up to you and whatever you produce, you can sell it on the market. Okay. So this just sounds like price gouging or something. Like this just <laughs> sounds like insane. <laughs> like we're going to give people half of what they need and then they're going to fight over the rest. Please price accordingly. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. It's, that's all they're doing. <laughs> bad in what world are you like that makes sense to me i gave you the chicago school like ex explanation of it but yeah that's literally what would happen <laughs> i gave you the dummy school <laughs> still works man <laughs> yeah that's it's it's just like yeah the rest of it you can gamble that's insane you can auction you can scalp the rest of yeah, it. yeah that's fucking scalping <laughs> like imagine if Ticketmaster sold half the tickets they have for a show and then the other ones gave them the third parties and we're just like good luck go for it <laughs> you don't really have to imagine that. That's kind of what they, that what is they kind do, of what happens. seemingly. But that is that is what is happening. That's insane. Yeah, that's okay. the law of the cooperatives in 1988. Just kind of like, here you go. Go ahead. Oh, it's cooperative, though, so it's good. But yeah, cooperative. What a cute way to put that. <laughs> cooperative for who? And, like, who in this world has the capital to, like, start those kinds of enterprises, I wonder, you know? <laughs> yeah, only the people who were well-appointed enough to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. The other half of this is glasnost, the openness part. Now, open and transparency could go to a couple different ways. Is it like, hey, we're going to let you guys know what the government's doing? Or is it, we're going to open our assholes to the West? <laughs> uh, you can't have one without the other, right? Uh, <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of what they're going for here is a all-of-the-above approach 
let's 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 do maximum openness, uh, maximum transparency. And I mean, like in some ways, it's admirable. Yeah, transparency can be good. Yeah, I'm into it. Gorbachev kind of advertises this as the you know necessary companion to Perestroika. You know, he's like, without this, it's it's useless sort of thing. I mean, if you had that transparency, though, wouldn't you be, like, pissed? Like, hey, that fucking rich asshole from the bureaucracy just made a butt ton of money off of, like, the food that I needed. That's not exactly the openness he's... <laughs> no, 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 not that kind of transparency. Yeah, he's going after... Uh, the, that one can stay opaque. <laughs> the main way Gorbachev uses Glasnost is he encourages newspapers that are you know basically continuing to operate or not operate based on the government's good graces uh and he encourages them to criticize the party specifically his opponents within the party i mean he's general secretary of the party but like people who are criticizing him that's who he wants them to go after and he's like hey you're allowed to go after them i'm allowing you to go after them please go after them but is he not allowing them to go after him I mean, he's okay. So this is where it's kind of complicated because he sort of is, but for the most part, class-wise, the press is more aligned with his sort of more liberal. Because I mean, he's the only guy in a while who's given them even this modicum of free press. That's true. You know, and he's sort of aligning with their sort of bourgeois aspirations sort of thing so he doesn't really have to crack down on them so much as more like point them at someone who's standing in the way of potentially even greater freedoms it'd be really funny if he came in and was like hey great news guys you can write whatever you want by the way i heard this hot piece of goss about this asshole over here yeah <laughs> <laughs> like he immediately gives them a hot tip yeah he sucks um <laughs> you should definitely if i were you i'd write something about him <laughs> So so you end up with more reporting like that. You end up more freedoms like that. And you end up generally with less of a crackdown. Some people put this under the umbrella of Glasnost overall, but you end up with uh, a, a laxer foreign policy. And so this is sort of hand in hand or side by side with Glasnost. But uh, Gorbachev takes a very conciliatory stance toward the West. He you know, visits Great Britain. When he's done meeting with Margaret Thatcher, she says, this more Mr. Gorbachev is someone who we can deal with. Ugh, God, that means I hate him. <laughs> uh, he goes to the United <laughs> States. He meets with, meets with Ronald Reagan. Um, and Reagan kind of comes away with the same impression. Like, uh, to be honest, Reagan's impression seems to be this guy's a chump. Seems to be like <laughs> Gorbachev's willing to give concessions to Reagan where Reagan will make none. And that's fine. Uh, <laughs> Make yourself unmanageable for those two assholes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they should not think you're someone they can deal with. <laughs> I, just, I can't deal with this person. <laughs> one of the big examples of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's sort of weakness in terms of foreign policy is his backing down uh, in the Afghanistan conflict. We've talked about that. We had a whole episode on the, you know, on we did. the Soviet-Afghan war. And it was a mistake. I mean, it was bad. Like It, it, it did not work out. It was a bad war. I didn't like it. 
didn't work out, was not well, all that stuff, you know, is basically, what were you doing? I'm, you know, I'm anti. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, he's like, let's, let's pull out of that and everything. He kind of broadens this though. And over time ends up (laughs) coming up with an alternative to what was then called the Brezhnev doctrine, which is kind of like the Soviet counterpart of the American cold war doctrines of like, let's fight the communists wherever they're trying to expand, you know, and Brezhnev was like, well, let's help the communist countries wherever the <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, United States trying to expand. Gorbachev's kind of stupid alternative to the Brezhnev doctrine was the Sinatra doctrine. That, that Sinatra? That Sinatra. What the fuck? How's he got a doctrine named after him? The name jokingly alluded to the song My Way, popularized <laughs> by Frank, Frank Sinatra. Okay. And that they would, you know, let the countries do it their way. And if you wanted to, say, um, allow the United States to foment rebellion in your country and let them take over, that's fine. You did it your way. This man really took off his belt, unbuttoned his trousers, and just, just put him on the floor and then bent the fuck over. So let's go. Well, you may be thinking that's unfair of them to characterize it this way. The United States was not <laughs> trying to foment rebellion in different places. but in, Totally not. No. In 1985, never. No. It's, it's, you know, come on. Why would they do this? We've literally never done that. In 1982, uh, the Reagan administration championed and then put together a program called the National Endowment for Democracy. Oh, man. I thought I was going to end in arts. That's a different one. Yeah, it's a different one. This one was put together through a, you know, very milk toast uh, government agency called the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. Okay, I'm already suspicious. Which routinely does work for the CIA. Okay, there we go. <laughs> and And the National Endowment for Democracy was created as this bipartisan endeavor so much so that like literally the Republican party and the democratic party each have an affiliated group within the NED that gets money from the federal government to do these programs in foreign countries. Not only that, the, you know, much vaunted friend of labor AFL CIO also Mm. has a member group within this. Damn it. Fucking, (laughs) Fuck you guys. To fund, you know, non-communist trade unions in different countries. Ugh. So they get, you know, billions of dollars or whatever from the federal government to fund, you know, quote unquote, expansions of democracy, what have you, in other countries. I mean, this is like when they had, what was it, the Radio Glad something? Gladio? Uh, Radio Free America, Voice of America, that sort of stuff. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, NED programs are run in more than 90 countries today. According to an interview with founder Alan Weinstein, he gave to the Washington Post in 1991, he declared, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. One of their big targets that comes into play in this story is Poland. They end up giving a lot of money to the Solidarity or Solidarność movement in Poland. This you know, quote unquote, independent free labor union movement there that was against the communist party. They basically fund them and fund kind of the dissident movement. 
that works to undermine the government there. That's insane because, yeah, that quote, we used to just do this in secret. <laughs> it's, and then fucking what's his name comes up here. And, or what's his name? Gorbachev is like, it's cool. You can just do it out in the open now. I'm not going to stop you. And they're like, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's that's, <laughs> that's what they did. <laughs> so if you just kind of open yourself up in that way, then yeah, shit's going to happen. Yeah, they're going to come. <laughs> the U.S. ends up sending $8 million a year saw Darsnosk, um, and also buying them like propaganda spreading materials, uh, printing presses and all that sort of shit to, you know, put out the leaflets, do your, you know, to do communist book clubs, but anti-communist book clubs. <laughs> when will the federal government fund my resistance movement? <laughs> yeah. They, at the same time that the U S was sanctioning the government of Poland. For what? For being a communist government. Okay. So they're funding the, you know, independent, free, quote-unquote, labor movement there, you know. And, and then also saying, but your government is an asshole. We're not, we're going to cut them off. So saying basically to the people there, starve if you want to adhere to your own government or join these guys, the rebels. Wow. So that's where he's at. He starts these, you know, reforms or whatnot uses the press to kind of attack his critics within the party. Although, I mean, again, he's the head of the party, but he's still like, no, you know, go, go get, go at these guys. Like I'm really trying to rebuild the country here. These guys suck. Clear the way for me, basically, which ends up biting him in the ass. One of the people he brings along in his sort of, you know, restructuring of the Soviet hierarchy uh, is a guy Where's his page? Are you going to show me a pic? Got 30 pics. Uh, 30 pics, 30 pages. 30 right? pics. 30 pics of this one guy. <laughs> you got a whole like collage. Yeah. You know what Gorbachev looks like, right? Mm, no, not really. All right, well, here's Gorby. Looks like a nerd. He's a nerd. Here's the guy I was talking about, though. Who's this other guy? Uh, this <laughs> guy is named Alexander Yakovlev. He looks like a angry dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, he he's because he's, he got the jowls. So Yakovlev is interesting. He's one of um, Gorbachev's kind of main guys. He brings him along. He's considered the godfather of Glasnost, uh, like the openness program. He's like, damn, is this guy Yakovlev? He knew what was up. That's what he wanted. He's very pro-Western. Uh, he, you know, he starts out quote unquote as a, you know, Marxist Leninist or whatever within the party and all that. But like he spends so much time studying abroad. He spends so much time talking with, uh, he, he ends up as a ambassador to Canada and gets a close friendship with their prime minister, Pierre Trudeau. You say Trudeau? Trudeau, like that guy's like, dad. Damn. Okay. Um, so much so that. That guy's brother is named Alexander Trudeau after this guy, Alexander. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and they they are purported to be of like mind, like in their own writings. But when he comes back, he like just writes shit about Canada, writes shit about all these places. He's like, fuck the West. But he's secretly a liberal. Like, check this okay, out. Okay. Okay. So he just did that so he could say a communist. Yeah. This is his... Um, his quote about perestroika and about like what the idea really was about this liberalization 
of the Soviet economy. He says, after the 20th Congress, in an ultra-narrow circle of our closest friends and associates, we often discuss the problems of democratization of the country and society. We chose a simple, like a sledgehammer method of propagating the quote-unquote ideas of late Lenin. A group of true, not imaginary reformers developed, of course, orally, the following plan. To strike with the authority of Lenin at Stalin and at Stalinism. And then, if successful, to strike with Plekhanov and social democracy at Lenin. And then, with liberalism and moral socialism at revolutionarism in general. The Soviet totalitarian regime could be destroyed only through Glasnost and totalitarian party discipline while hiding behind the interests of improving socialism. Looking back, I can proudly say that a clever but very simple tactic, the mechanisms of totalitarianism against the system of totalitarianism has worked. Oh my God, that's, this guy needs a fucking mustache <laughs> to stroke. That was crazy. I mean, what what a fucking playbook, though. Like, that's exactly how people perpetuate anti-communism today. It's like, well, let's shit on Stalin first off, and then we can use that to shit on Lenin. Like, that's exactly what they do. Mm -hmm. And so he was just like, yeah, let's, I mean, let's do that. Let's pretend to be the genuine Lenin guys. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to say, well, you know, not Lenin was not that great. Let's, Lenin let's be also the, mean. <laughs> let's be the real social democracy guys. And then finally we can be like, let's be the real liberal democracy guys. Fuck. God damn. Fuck this guy. I want to shave his eyebrows off now. <laughs> They're good he eyebrows. Looks, he looks proud of those. To be honest. Who wouldn't be? God, what an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's some long-term <laughs> scheming. That's one of the ones when I first read about him, I was like, oh, this is going to be juicy. <laughs> <laughs> Gorbachev, you know, he's he's got such great, illustrious voices in his ears. Uh, he is making these reforms and kind of opening up a gateway to pr a private economy, essentially, when he's opening up these cooperatives or whatever. He's also inviting foreign investors to invest in state-owned firms. So he's getting foreign capital in as well, which is problematic. I mean, that's going to lead to more of a, if you, especially if you're pairing that with Glasnost, you are in lots of ways just really opening the door to uh, fucked up shit. Even if, if yeah, the, the Glasnost part wasn't a part of it, the idea of Okay, you're inviting Western capitalists to come over and tell someone how to run a factory. Again, like the whole scalping thing, they're not running it for the people anymore. They're running it for profit. And like, that's not good. Yeah. As part of the Glasnost part, the, another part is opening up the party mechanisms and, and trying to, you know, quote unquote, democratize these. And one of the big things is he wanted to open up the post of party secretary at the top level, but also at the de general Republic levels and make those multi-candidate elections so that you would still have to be a communist to the extent that that meant anything in the Soviet <laughs> Union at that point. Yeah. But you would be voted on by the people. And what this ends up doing is making the candidates for being a party secretary for your republic or whatever, making that reliant on 
local support, but more specifically, more reliant on the support of your local press organs to put your name out there and say, you're a cool guy. You should, you know, they should vote for you because the press was really how anyone got any information about who was running. Oh, did we get in there and fuck shit up? Uh, the United States really didn't in this point. The thing was, though, that Gorbachev was at this point already kind of mobilizing the press. Mm, and saying, that's right. He had buddies. Hey, you want me, you know, you want me to champion the reforms that will, you know, enhance your position in society. So the press was by and large pro Gorbachev and anti his opponents in the party. So they were going to go for candidates who were like him. So a lot. Yeah. A lot of the the press would be biased towards people and, and those candidates themselves would kind of vie for local press support. And not only that, it's not just like local press support in terms of um, who would support Gorbachev at the national level the most, but there was actually a division within there that he didn't expect was that people uh, that people in the republics would just turn toward nationalism and say, doesn't matter what the, the local press has his class interest. They are Kazakh press and they will support who is supporting Kazakh interests. And so I need to be a Kazakh nationalist and the press will support me because they are also Kazakhs. And so all the republics, most of the republics started doing this. Uh, the, the leaders there started playing toward this nationalism, getting the support of the press there in that way. And pretty much all the republics end up way more nationalist. Fuck, okay. Because of this. And so now you start to see the Soviet Union sort of tearing at the seams mm-hmm. all these different republics saying, fuck, why should we listen to this shit anymore? Why don't we do our own thing? Yeah, fuck. So everything is sort of tearing at the seams here, I think. And and with the rise of that nationalism, you start to see these pro-perestroika national fronts being built in the different republics. Of saying like, yeah, we want all these reforms and you know, let's let's do it. But they, they you know, initially while they are kind of like captained by these liberals who kind of want to do more of what Gorbachev's doing, they really quickly get co-opted by these figures who are like, no, let's do na- let's do this nationalism, let's do that nationalism and stuff. And so you end up with these different kind of like kind of hand in hand with that nationalism aspect. You end up with these tearing apart different groups in each of your republics, and you start seeing big protests, especially in the Baltics, Estonia, Lithuania, these guys start protesting against the government uh, altogether and saying like, what the fuck? Why do we have these guys? We hate them. The reforms of perestroika, they don't go that well. Okay. What happens? (laughs) Well, one of the big things is when you just take out the government orders of half of what you were going to order on behalf of the people. <laughs> you have shortages? Yeah. You end up with huge shortages. A fucking idiot could tell you that. <laughs> you were kind of going to say, hey, the rest of it just make up and just kind of like produce and try to get prices for it, right? Just do free market. If there's a shortage, how much is that thing going to fucking cost? You have, yeah. You have the government producing less for the people. You have the companies basically guessing at what they should produce for the people. Besides that, based on how much they think they can rip them off, this sort of price experimentation, widespread shortages. And we briefly mentioned this without really, I I didn't 
know the actual mechanism behind it when we were talking about like, hey, this happened in like a particularly difficult time in the 80s. When we talked about our myths of the Soviet Union and all the bread lines and everything, we said, yeah, that was one point in time. Well, this is why. (laughs) Because they tried to do capitalism. Yeah. The the, the classic pictures of the barren grocery stores of the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union in its crumbling days. Well, when was it crumbling was under perestroika. Wow. That is very telling. (laughs) It's when they were trying to bring about some sort of capitalist thing. And not, I mean, not even really gradually, I don't know, kind of gradually doing it, but like shittily doing it. Not really. Like stupidly doing it. Yeah, like to me that is just the essence of uh, of capitalism is that we are not producing what people need. We are producing what we can get away with and what we can charge people for. Yeah. Ugh, nasty. The economy's pulling apart. You have... uh, rebellions in Estonia and Lithuania. You also have these countries like starting to declare, like declare their own independence. Oh shoot. Okay. It's really popping off. Lithuania, Moldova, Estonia, Latvia, Armenia, Georgia, all these guys start to either declare independence or start to advocate in that regard. Uh, Kind of spurred on by this whole Sinatra doctrine. Basically, we're not going to back up any, you know, any sort of fighting against reactionary forces or anything like that. We're going to let Eastern European socialist states fend for themselves. And I think you have to lay some of the blame in some, in a lot of instances, on the failure of the Soviet governments there to do a good enough job of winning people over and saying, hey, I know we may have had some rough times in the past and you like what we did then, but like we're cool now, you know? Yeah, that Russification shit. Cut that out. It's too complex of a story to get into all the different national stories of what happened here and there and everything. We can get into that at some point, but not today. But the point is, things are falling apart in these different constituent republics and things were falling, falling apart even further afield. The Soviet Union in 1989 cuts $5 billion worth of, of an oil exchange with Cuba. So they were, you know, exchanging for Cuban goods and shit, $5 billion worth of oil that they just cut off. And this, this, you're wondering why Cuba had to go through like market reforms and shit like that in the 90s and even more so more recently is because of that initiation of the special period with the collapse yeah. of Soviet Union. That's, that's what kicked it off. Oh, that sucks. So, so yeah, there's, there's a huge pulling back, like we said, Lithuania, Latvia, all these countries start saying, fuck it, we're out. And Gorbachev's approval just starts tanking, right? People, mm. people are like, what the fuck are you even doing? <laughs> Sucks here. By, and th- so we're talking 1990 now. This is like February 1990. By March, the Russian state okay so the the name for this is the russian soviet federative socialist republic the russian sfsr that's a mouthful that's the state of russia within the soviet union okay okay, gotcha Mm -hmm. so they have an election where they elect the congress of people's deputies of russia blah 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 whatever yeah so the election was open to 
kind of four categories of candidates. Um, traditional, regular-ass communists. Uh, <laughs> ref, like Gorbachev-type communists. You had, like, nationalists. And then you had, like, liberals. Like, liberal Democrat types. Oh, God. Um, and so you either had communists, which were either traditional or Gorbachev. And, Real or not. And then you had independents, <laughs> which could be a, anyone else, you know. Yeah, wow, so, what a rogues gallery. Yeah, and then within that, you had a lot of people who were in any of the camps pretending to be communists, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> so, like, who the fuck knows? I hope you did your research. That's what, yeah, that's... I mean, <laughs> and also the press is biased, so good luck. Yeah, I think that's why I'm more of an, an advocate of strong party discipline, is because then you end up with this shit where it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, the guy <laughs> says he's a communist, but what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I mean, fucking hell, look at even, you know people who claim to be progressives and get, then get elected and fucking do whatever the hell they want. So we know it, it happens. We know people fucking turn coat all the time. Yeah. Once that's elected, they end up getting to kind of choose, okay, who's going to be kind of in charge of that? Because they elect from that the Supreme Soviet and then that elects a chair. It's this weird like pyramid sort of situation. In that fateful election of the kind of the, the Congress of People's Deputies, think about it, maybe the House of Representatives sort of thing, elected to that body is one Boris Yeltsin. Ah, Oregon girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 2000s oh. Indies reference there. Yeah, if anyone gets that, congrats, we're the same age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Boris Yeltsin's elected from Yekaterinburg, then called Sverdslovsk's. He's elected, and then he is later, shortly thereafter, elected chair of the Supreme Soviet. Even though Gorbachev goes out there and says, hey, please don't vote for this guy. He is an asshole. He is way more right wing than I am. Whoa. And they're all like, come on. He doesn't seem that bad. He's But also, I don't fucking trust Gorbachev as far as I can throw him. He does not look like a small man. Well, they vote for him anyway. He just basically says, yeah, I'm, I'm change. I'm the change guy. Come on, vote for me. I'll change things. Also, now that I see Gorbachev's picture, it's very funny to think of him as having high charisma. This man has zero riz. <laughs> oh. He must tell, like, great jokes, you know, great sense of humor, something. like Physical appearance not there? Not there for me, at least. Maybe he's your type, but hey, mine. <laughs> that's, you know, that's another thing that's going on is this increased rivalry between the... Russian state there and uh, the Soviet Union because upon the election of Yeltsin to the chair of the Supreme Soviet, it's not like he drives this. It's that Russia was sort of doing the same shit that all these republics were doing. Mm, is yeah, that, they're like, what if we did our own thing? Yeah, uh, he's elected. And then June 12th, 1990, the Russian state, so SFSR, adopts a declaration of sovereignty. And they say, fuck it. Uh, this is what a lot of the republics were doing. If they weren't declaring just like, we are independent, they were saying, our laws, we make our laws, they apply here. Any th- shit, any uh. stupid stuff the Soviet government does, doesn't apply here. It's just like what Texas and the Texas, southern yeah. states would like <laughs> to do. Texas does. For all the, yeah, all the U.S. laws are like, yeah, that don't apply here. This is Texas, you know. Russia was doing that. Wow. Do you think like the other, like the Balkan states were like, 
okay, if y'all are out, like, right? you guys had it good, assholes. Yeah, you guys were fucking <laughs> kicking us around. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> and now you're tired of it, too? Okay, shit must be real bad. Right, yeah, that's like, wow. Um, and shit was real bad. I mean, like, you know, on again, on the international stage, the Soviet Union had abandoned uh, any sort of aid to Nicaragua. As far as the domestic sphere went, they were still kind of dealing with other republics wanting to break away too. And you had Azerbaijan, you had Armenia, you had all these, all this sort of stuff. And we can't again get into. I know that this is a episode on the fall of the Soviet Union, which does include all these Soviet republics. We just like literally <laughs> cannot get into all the no, no positions. Of can't. Ukraine was doing the same thing. Like it was just like coming apart at the seams. Essentially, is the story there. Yeah. Everybody was like, I want out of this shit show. And so at some point, Gorbachev starts trying to push seemingly kind of a last ditch measure uh, to salvage things. And he puts together a referendum. It says, hey, guys. Do you guys think we should keep going? Literally. Yes. <laughs> now, this is the wording. That's, that's the wording is, do you think we should keep going? Now, it is a little bit more complicated than that because the way it's worded is a little misleading. Oh, classic proposition language. Yeah. <laughs> he put together this idea of a new union treaty, which was going to transform the Soviet Union from the USSR to the USS, the um, Union of Sovereign States, which was going to be a confederation of sovereign states, like way less everyone does this and more like we're all different countries doing different things, but we like each other, you know. Uh, we have the same, like, military or something, but everything else, we just do our own shit. And so the way he builds this is in a way to try to get support from everybody. Uh, do you like the Soviet Union? You're probably going to vote yes. Do you like the so you know, do you, do you want my plan, my new plan? You're probably going to vote yes. Because he, he phrases it this way. Do you consider it necessary to preserve the Soviet Union as a renewed federation of equal sovereign republics, which will be fully insured of human rights and freedoms of any nationality. Well, made it, way to make it sound fucking hunky-dory. Right, like any hardline Soviet is going to say, ain't that the Soviet Union? <laughs> yeah, I would like to keep the Soviet Union, please. And then anyone who's, you know, backing his sort of agenda would be like oh yeah that's you know what gorbachev keeps talking about is human rights and you know equal i don't know it's just like a catch it's very sneaky he gets support from this um uh 70 of people by and large you guys vote like to. human rights or what <laughs> so yeah most people vote in favor of that because uh the initial like the parliament basically said we want to ask people do they want to do the the new renewed thing you know, and also they asked like four other questions. Do you consider it necessary to preserve the Soviet Union as a single state? Do you consider it necessary to preserve the socialist system? Do you consider it necessary to preserve the Soviet government in the renewed union? And do you feel the need to safeguard the union in the renewed human rights and freedoms of any nationality? I don't know what that means. So we just broke up the first question to like five more questions. Right. Like, what about this part? What about this part? Are you sure? <laughs> One guy voted yes for everything but the human rights. He's Fuck like, I don't like those. Ew. Those are stupid. That's gross. Now, one thing about the referendum is the Baltics boycotted it because they were like, we already did 
declared yeah we're out it's like i don't care <laughs> Sorry, what you too do late. <laughs> this is a text from my ex deleting right um and so it's kind of in this context of potentially putting together a new union treaty following that outline of forming the union of sovereign states as a altogether different soviet union more in Gorbachev's sort of social democracy picture, right? It's in that context that you have um, the August coup in 1991. What's going on? Who's cooing? In the face of this potentially less centralized state, you have a group of eight members of the government do a coup attempt to try to forestall this. Oh, shit. Okay. Who's, who's doing it? Old guys, new guys? Mostly old guys. They're they're all I figured. I mean, they're all old guys. They're characterized as hardliners, you know, hardline mm-hmm. communists. Just can't get with the times. Yeah. They're led by a guy named Gennady Yanavev. Yanayev, rather. So you have Gennady Yanayev, you have Dmitry Yazov, Vladimir Kryuchkov, Valentin Pavlov, Boris Pugo, Oleg Baklanov, Vasily. Starodupstev and Alexander Tizikov. Okay, great. Man, good fucking job with those names. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, if I butchered them and you're of their estate or you have the same name or you don't, but you know how to say it, just let me know. It's fine. <laughs> but these guys, you know, they're in government or whatever and they're like, this is fucking bullshit. Uh, Gorbachev is fucking ruining the country. And so while Gorbachev, he goes on vacation. Okay. goes on vacation and so they show up they crash his vacation they say hey yo you're ruining the country he's like you're ruining my fucking vacation Vacation. what are you doing here (laughs) and they're like we don't fucking care uh look you need to declare a state of emergency so that you can get the shit in order because everything's falling apart i don't know if you know this but everything's falling apart around (laughs) the ears fix it come on we'll back you if you declare a state of emergency and start fixing shit, if you don't resign, your vice president, he's a cool guy. We talked to him. Resign. Let him do it. We'll back him instead. If you want to fucking do this vacation shit, do this. Fine. Who cares? Right? If you want to keep this vacation, that's fine. Yeah. They're like, we'll leave you to it. Just leave us to it. Right? So that's what the ultimatum they come to him with. He says, fuck you. Uh, I'm the big man now. I, you know. Worked my way up here as the secret reformer, and here I am. So deal with it. Doing the reforms. Ugh. So they said, oh, deal with this. You're under house arrest. Because <gasps> they brought... Shit. You know, secret, you know, special forces with them or whatever. And so they put them under house arrest. And they come out of there and they release a statement. And they say, yeah, uh, Perestroika, it's bullshit. Gorbachev, he's ripping off the state. Uh, he's ripping apart our country. Fuck him. Vice president's in charge now. We're doing a coup. <laughs> Damn, okay. And they announce it. Now, is the vice president Yeltsin or is that somebody else? Vice president, not Yeltsin. The vice president okay. um, was... That's right, because Yeltsin was in charge of like the Russian state. Yeah, so the vice president yeah, of the yeah. Soviet Union at the time was Gennady Yanayev, uh, kind of considered the leader of the coup. Is that the eyebrows guy? No, this is a different dude. That was Yakovlev. Damn it, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Here is Yanayev. All right, show me. Let me give him an insulting nickname. But he looks like kind of a mafioso. I don't know. 
Mm, he looks like a Ooh, jersey. He does. <laughs> Doesn't he? he? He looks like where, like, he knows where the bodies are buried for He's sure. He's like Those the guy sunglasses. that tells Tony that Adon never wears shorts. <laughs> totally, totally, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I think it's really the, the tinted glasses that do yeah. it for me. <laughs> um, so Yaniev ends up temporarily kind of in charge. It seems like at this point, most people agreed with the coup launchers they were like fuck gorbachev like gorbachev's approval at this point was like in the teens somewhere (laughs) shit okay people thought he was really fucking up well it's supposed to pit the coup launchers against gorbachev himself but gorbachev ends up backed by the russian state uh yeltsin boris yeltsin is kind of like against these guys because they're the hardline communists and he's not. Yeah. And so he doesn't really, I mean, he's trying to break away basically from Gorbachev and Soviet Union, but he'd rather have Gorbachev because he's kind of a softer target, I think. <laughs> and he thinks he can just be like, fuck you, you know, and get out of there. So it's kind of like the Soviet Union plus any of the republics that are still staying loyal versus the versus Gorbachev and the Russian state and any of the republics that are trying to break away. That's kind of how the lines are drawn. I mean, it's nationalists versus the remains of the loyal Soviets. Yeah. It ends up breaking down to most people, like I said, supported the the coup launchers, the, the, the communists in this. Yeltsin's authorities later discovered that nearly 70% of the Soviets and committees either backed the coup or attempted to remain neutral. Within the Russian state, most of the like oblasts, these are different administrative divisions, supported the coup and like, you know, kind of put pressure on that to happen. Like, so it was, it was kind of like, it was pretty popular. Yeah, yeah, it was a cool coup. Yeah. Yeltsin takes the lead of the opposition of it and basically the coup loses heart. They fail to launch the order to go arrest Yeltsin. Oh, man. Oh, should we do it? Um, they hesitate. Okay. And by that point, Yeltsin has got the armed forces to be like, no, surround the place, like get these guys, arrest these guys. And then they just arrest them. That ends up what's what happens in this one. And so this totally fails. More republics end up breaking away. Moldova, Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan. It starts to come apart at the seams. It's even just all more done. by that point. Yeah. Yeah. We're in tatters. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. These guys get arrested. Most, almost all of them. One guy, I think, commits suicide, but the rest of them um, get arrested, but then like pardoned. Oh, the guy who committed suicide's got to feel real bad about right, that. Like, like, come on, don't. Uh, <laughs> it yeah, might not happen that. It might not turn out that badly. Yeah, Jesus. Maybe it's because he was so like OG Stalinist that he was like, I know what he would do. If someone started a coup in his time. Right. Or like, <laughs> maybe he's just like, I don't want to live in. Yeah. He might've had some other issues. The outcome there is Gorbachev is technically reinstated into power, but everyone's like, you didn't do shit, bro. Yeah. You suck. <laughs> Yeltsin bailed your ass out. So he looks like a chump and ends up resigning as general secretary of the communist party. He's still in government. He's still like, at, what this, is he doing? at this point, he's technically the president of the Soviet Union because they like changed the offices. I'm like, this was one of their like where we they restructured the in the election. It was like, oh, the 
the one house and then the other thing. Complicated stuff that's intergovernmental stuff that doesn't matter. But he had, he's still there. He resigns, but he's still like in government in the Soviet Union. But like they don't have very many people left. Everyone's declaring independence. Ten republics had seceded from the Union shit. altogether. Just like what? Bye. <laughs> Who cares about this <laughs> shit? Um, Gorbachev is just like standing there looking around basically. Like, mm-hmm. what do I even do? Yeltsin is taking... What is left of this? Yeah, uh, Boris Yeltsin is taking over more and more of, like, what the government does day to day. Because if there's no other states left, then it's just Russia. Yeah, well, so, okay, by this point, it's Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. That's it? December 8th, yeah. December 8th, they meet, the leaders of those countries meet in Western Belarus, and they sign the Belavesha Accords, uh, saying... We're done. They say, not that we're done, but like, it's done. Like, <laughs> we tried. They I proclaim guess. the Soviet Union had ceased to exist. Not that they were ceasing it, but like, <laughs> it, it's gone, guys. <laughs> if you look around and see, where is it? It ceased oh to exist. Oh my God. What a bummer meeting. Yeah. Gee, imagine doing the catering for that event. <laughs> oh, what do you even, where do you start? Uh, worse yet, like, being the jazz band that plays for that. You're like, we're not getting fucking shit for tips. (laughs) No, they're not. The bartender's just like, I am going to have to do so much work here. (laughs) It's just double vodka. Slinging drinks. Yeah. And so they announced the formation of the Commonwealth of Independent States, uh, which is a thing that still exists. Um, This is like a Russia plus sort of thing. So Belarus, Russia, Ukraine uh, Ukraine used to be involved in it, but not like directly in it. Definitely not now. Uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. So everyone like still had Europa. each other's phone numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the old group, ch- the <laughs> new group There's chat. still group chat, yeah. but like, you know, some people left and, you know, it was, the memes aren't as good. Yeah. New mods. Okay. Some people muted it. Some people deleted it. Some people blocked their number. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes there are memes about people who used to be in it. Mm-hmm. Like, remember that fucker? <laughs> <laughs> that guy sucked. Gorbachev whined. He was like, this is unconstitutional. You can't do that. But like no one was listening to him by that point. Like, what is he even? You did this. <laughs> what the fuck you complain about, bro? Like you did this. Yeah, pretty much. Either he's like super double down on the lie or he's just so fucking stupid. <laughs> he doesn't see how like the one to one connection. No, I think by this point. I mean, basically, he's just that stupid. Like, he's he's just like, uh, I thought... That, this one, this got a little out of hand. I, so I do somewhat <laughs> think that there's a difference between him and the Yakovlev guy in that the Yakovlev guy was, like, evilly kind of trying to do things. And I think Gorbachev was secretly a social democrat. But I just, I do think he was, like, not smart enough to realize what that would do to the system he was in. Because I, I was, I've been thinking about that is like with communism and with socialism, like there, there has to be a line. And like you were talking about with the party mechanisms and stuff, like there has to be a point where you go like, guys, this isn't communism anymore. We fucking got lost. What the fuck are we doing? Yeah. And like the thing is, as soon as you introduce like a modicum of private enterprise, like that thing is like a cancer. It is nasty. It's going to expand. It Like, those fuckers are coming. And, like, unless you limit it to, like, just 
luxury goods. And then you're going to have people being like, well, I want the luxury goods too. Like, you can't just, it's just, you give a mouse a fucking cookie. Mm-hmm. You give a capitalist a factory. Like, it's it ain't going to add well for you. And, it's not gonna, and, and the question is when, because like we did, you know, we've talked about Yugoslavia. They had a very strong leader and political system for a long time you know a a leader with the will to impose a strong political system and popular support to back that to where he was able to kind of manage the contradictions of a socialist market system that had that sort of cancer within it that he could be like well you're not going to metastasize under my watch bitch you know like yeah like he managed to keep it under control yeah but then when he was gone it was like a decade and they were gone yeah, because then you, you have little sneaky creeps like Eyebrows Boy over here coming in. Yeah. You have, you know, okay, a modern example, China. You know, they've got a lot of capitalist uh, aspects in their economy, socialism with Chinese characteristics. And then the argument or the, you know, the debate, I guess, is, is that currently tearing them apart? Or do they have a strong enough political system that's like holding that in check somehow? What's their plan? And I mean, I don't think anybody outside of the system, outside of the party knows what the plan is, if it's going to possibly, you know, what what the future <laughs> lies in old. I think they're playing a dangerous game by doing that. You know, uh, me personally, I guess I hope that I, I hope the best for them. I hope that they make some improvements. I mean, I, I hope they, you know, make things better in general. But like, you know, that's with any socialist project. I mean, yeah, same with Cuba. Like, they, they've opened up a little bit recently. They seem like they're still, like, got their eye on the ball. But that's the thing. is like, as soon as you take your eye off of that, you give so many opportunities for reformists to come in and say, what if we went the other way? And if you let that go on long enough, like, you're good, congratulations, you're, you're now a capitalist. Yeah, eventually you end up with this. <laughs> Rich is like, why don't yeah. I just, you know, turn... Because here's... Okay, let's, let's round it up here. Yeah, yeah, let's finish the story. So... Everything's falling apart. Gorbachev's watching the paint dry. Um, they they they've all broken up basically. That's December eighth. They say new thing, new group chat. December twelfth, the Russian state. That's the Supreme Soviet of the Russian SFSR. Mm-hmm. That state. Uh, they ratify those accords. The new group chat. They denounce the original nineteen twenty two Union <gasps> Treaty. They basically, you know, they make a meme making fun of the Soviet Union original thing. They're like, that was bullshit, wasn't it? And everyone's like, hee, hee, hee. But their bitch asses were all a part of it. And uh, later that day, Gorby hints for the first time that he's considering stepping down. It's like, I don't know, (laughs) guys. Nobody likes me. Maybe maybe it's time to call. Everyone's like, what? Like, maybe it's time to call. You're still here? What are you doing? (laughs) Why are you still here, bro? (laughs) He meets with Yeltsin and says, looks like I'm done. You know, like, is that, is that true? <laughs> I think like, my work here is done. Yeltsin's like, I mean, bro. I would love that. Like, it, <laughs> Please it leave. It does seem that way, doesn't it? <laughs> the Russian SFSR, their Supreme Soviet, which is what it's still called, adopts a statute, changes its legal name to the Russian Federation, uh, December 21st, representatives of 11 of the 12 remaining republics, everybody but Georgia, uh, signs the Alma-Ata Protocol, which says, yep, the Soviet Union is indeed gone. <laughs> uh-huh. We're going sta- to be part of the CIS. 
Oh, sis. Yeah, the sis. Uh, <laughs> they turned sis. Damn. You hate to see it. They accepted Gorbachev's resignation, which was not really technically done yet. They was like in advance of when he had resigned. <laughs> One last thing. Yeah. If this guy resigns, I'm into when, it. Yeah, when... <laughs> When this guy does, I'm leaving this, will, and it but. does not affect me anymore. But <laughs> I want to make sure this fucker doesn't have a job. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, basically, that's December 21st. Gorbachev then goes and tells CBS News that he would resign as soon as he saw that this would actually come into like come into being. He's like, okay, yeah, apparently everyone wants me out, so. (laughs) (laughs) What an embarrassing phone call. Well, that's another thing of Glasnost is that it really opened up to the Western press. So, like, as these things unfold, Russians and people in the Soviet republics were subjected to the Western narrative of what all was happening. So, like, everything seems like it happened so fast because it was partially driven by Western media spinning a certain narrative of... Oh, this is what's happening, you know? But anyway, by this point, the writing is on the wall. Uh, Nationally televised speech, the evening of December 25th, Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as president of the Soviet Union, declared the office extinct, and ceded all of its powers to Boris Yeltsin. Oh, wow. And so that night, December 25th, 7.32 p.m. Moscow time, he appeared on television after he appeared on television and said, I'm out. Boris is the guy. They cut to uh, red square. They showed the Soviet flag being lowered to the oh. Soviet anthem being played. It was lowered all the way down. And then they raised the new, the current uh, Russian flag in its place. That's so boring. They really were just like, well, if we have red, white, and blues, and also stripes. You know, the things that everybody does? Let's just do that. <laughs> a design failure, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was kind of the fall, specifically, of the Soviet Union. It has a longer aftermath, I think, that's interesting. The next day, the upper house of the Russian parliament, the Soviet of the republics, ratified those accords and basically voted the Soviet Union out of existence. Uh, okay just just really stomping it at the ground at this point like nope still no yeah the last day you could say they possibly existed is december 31st when russia took over their seat in the united nations oh yeah this is ours now so that's that's officially the end there the crazy aftermath i think is that boris yeltsin after that you know new year who's this (laughs) january 1992 he ends up using emergency powers to end price controls just to do what's called shock therapy to just do mm. rapid capitalization, you know, ending communism at all costs to the economy. And it just tanks. Average income is more than halved. <gasps> There's massive privatization, huge unemployment. And now you have to pay for shit. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is, is just goes down the tubes basically. Uh, and the, one of the weird things is that they just do this all under the old, soviet constitution like no one makes a new one for the (laughs) russian federation it's just the old one wow and so the old congress that voted you know voted it voted the soviet union out of existence is still there so you Mm -hmm. still have the congress of people's deputies or whatever for the russian state like that's still their government uh and they get they get kind of pissed off that boris yeltsin is just like 
essentially just stomping everything into the ground. They're like, fuck yeah. you. Like, this sucks. Like we, we didn't like Gorbachev. He was a dumbass. but like, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> and they have a back and forth, a uh, big, huge power dispute. Everything Yeltsin's trying to do, the, the parliament's resisting and vice versa. Uh, and finally, 1993, it kind of comes to a head. Parliament wants to strip him of his powers. Uh, he's trying, you know, stepping in the way that trying to refuse that, obviously. Uh, and they vote, they have a vote to try to impeach him. Oh, shit. So he shows up and he's like, look, sorry. I mean, I'm going to try to change. You know, I'm not such a bad guy. <laughs> he narrowly avoids the impeachment. And they hold a referendum saying nationwide saying and not the republic so just russia now because everything's busted open do you have confidence in yeltsin people basically say narrowly yes and his policies narrowly yes and all this what a like personal way to word that like do you have confidence in do you think he's a good like, guy? if i lost that vote that'd be like devastating no confidence <laughs> no one has any confidence in you that's why chancellor valoran looks so sad you know, yeah, yeah. He He's just like broken man, down. They don't believe in me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that was in nineteen ninety three. In May Day of nineteen ninety three, communist parties go out there and protest, uh, saying this is fucking bullshit. We need to bring mm-hmm. back the old communist party. Like this you know, Oh hell yeah. This sucks. Uh the police obviously crack down on them and shit gets Oh hell out. no. Uh and by September, the back and forth between Parliament has come to a head. Yeltsin says, You know what? I've been trying to appoint people. You guys keep getting in the way of that. You don't like me privatizing everything. I don't like you nullifying all my shit. So he tries to suspend his vice president, like his vice president, the the parliament. He His vice president has been saying that Yeltsin is doing, quote, economic genocide. Yeah. That's what he's doing. And Yeltsin's like, fuck you. You're my vice president. Not my, you know, not my president. You're, you're second, like chill out and suspends him. And parliament says, Bitch, you Fuck can't you. do that. You can't do that. So uh, Yeltsin says, watch me. I'm dissolving the Supreme Soviet <gasps> altogether. What the fuck? This is unconstitutional. Literally. Yeah, you think? It's awkward, but they are using the old constitution. The old constitution says if you try to do that, you're kicked out. You're no longer the president. <laughs> That's a great role. Yeah. And uh, so the Supreme Court and, uh, impeaches him. Uh, and they basically just end up with a two rival government situation, Yeltsin versus parliament, each one saying, you know, Yeltsin versus his own vice president who's saying like, no, I'm president, this sort of rivalry, essentially like a proto civil war situation. You have mass protests in the streets. You have paramilitaries coming out there. You throw up the barricades, uh, barbed wire, uh, the, the government set, sets up these barricades around the parliament building, which is called the Russian Shit. White House. It's this big white tower. And parliament, for their part, ha- has these armed paramilitary guys who have come in there with fucking weapons and shit, automatic weapons and stuff to help them hold out. Uh, and so they end up with like a gun battle at the TV station. Shit. Uh, pe- you know, people get killed there. The Russian army ends up surrounding the parliament building. And Yeltsin orders them to shell it, starting <gasps> with the top floors there in an effort to deter sniper fire and maybe to cow people into. But th- this is Holy this the, the top crap. part of that building that I'm sending you is not supposed to be black. It just was after the shelling. <gasps> oh, my God. Holy shit. The tanks open up on them. The parliament, for their part, I don't mean to paint them as like pacifists here. They were calling, they were trying to call the the uh, army to 
do a counter-strike. They were trying to call the Air Force to, to bomb the, uh, the uh, Kremlin where uh, Yeltsin was holed up. So they, they have this big, huge backup. I mean, like 147 people are killed ultimately. Uh, special forces go in and arrest these guys. For the arrest parliament for, you know, trying to hold out. And Yeltsin comes out of this, consolidates power. Says, you what know, this was the communists. This is what communists do. They were trying to, you know, and he ends up banning communist parties altogether. Oh, my God. That's no longer in effect, but that was for a while. He ends up getting a new constitution approved and Russia just goes down this hyper capitalist road. He, he ends up getting reelected in 1996 with Bill Clinton's help in, in the United States. Ugh, he convinces gross. the IMF to give Russia a $10 billion loan. That, Not an uh, IMF loan. <laughs> right? That's how all the worst stories end. Yeah. Uh, basically, the White House is like funding advisors for his reelection campaign. Um, Russia ends up selling off 116,000 state-owned enterprises, auctions them off. If you ever wonder, why does Russia have all these like oil oligarchs and everything? One method they used was giving out shares of state-owned companies to everybody pretty much everybody in society and then just having like reverse scalpers buy them up from people for cheap. Cool. Great. So obviously that's just going to concentrate wealth right back into, they would sell off these state owned, you know, oil companies and everything to these oligarchs tied to Yeltsin and tied to mafiosos and tied to everyone else for like 10% of their actual cost. Still too much for regular people to afford, but a bargain basement deal for these multi-billionaires. What the fuck? Their 2004 poverty rate was 20%. Their 1997 real average income was 30% of what it was in 1990. It was just ripped apart. Just ripped apart. And that's essentially kind of the sad aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. Wow. Wow. I'm trying to like math wise, like imagine like having to live through that, like being able to remember those that you know rent being two percent of your income or whatever yeah you know yeah oh and then you're like well and now here we're here i am right yeah oh that's awful that's some nasty shit it is yeah and it's not even not even delving into all of the all of the different stories that go on in the different republics aside from saying like yeah there was this nationalism poll and this is kind of the reason that a lot of that motivation was there but like i don't know i feel like when i came away from this it was like such a complex story i was only able to really scratch kind of the surface of it but it still it still brings i think to me so much to light of like here are all you know so many different ways that these different errors can fuck you over can fuck over a communist project yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. Like, I, I think our discussion a few minutes ago, like, still holds of this is the danger of letting in oh, just a little bit of market socialism to, you know, make people happy. And like, I agree, it's important to make people happy. But at what cost? <laughs> you know, like, at what point have you turned the corner into a point of no return? Yeah. And when should you focus on making people happy? versus securing yourself you know and yeah maybe you do come across as an asshole but you're an asshole that has a chance at like 
you know, ha- their people have a chance of keeping themselves free. You know, yeah, lots of people are like, oh, Castro and Che, you guys are assholes for, you know, not letting there be a capitalist party in your country, but psh, they fucking survive. We don't want that here. You know? Yeah, like, get out. This You don't go here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it it is... I think very critical, however you do it, to keep the goal the same, you know, to keep striving for for communism and and keep striving for the people. And I I think when they started to move away from that, like, again, the factory thing hits me so hard. I'm just like, yeah, who cares about meeting the needs of the people? Let's like make some money. Like, fuck you, (laughs) you know, like and, and any of those kinds of decisions, even when they're wrapped up in like, oh, it's consumer goods, that must be good. It's like. No, when you turn a person into consumer, that doesn't make it better. No, like, yeah. <laughs> if you like take care of a person and make sure that like, hey, your rent is paid and your, um, you know, healthcare and childcare and all this stuff is taken care of, that's what people want. Like, I don't care how many fucking brands I can buy. Like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, that is a certain type of freedom, but it's not freedom to crucial. what? Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. Is 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 keeping you free from capitalism is worth quite a bit in my book. And I was very intrigued by the different personalities and approaches to this of like Gorbachev maybe being slightly more well-meaning of like, Oh, it's social democracy, which I think to us living in like the conservative hellscape of the United States sounds pretty sick. Mm -hmm. I'd love a social democracy. (laughs) Oh yeah. He's probably to the left of Bernie Sanders, you know, exactly. Like that's a huge step up from where we are. And like, you know, and then you have, you know, secretive people who are, like, really liberal in their hearts or whatever, mm-hmm. but, like, lie and get in power and then do whatever the fuck they want. It really makes me question, like, the value of reformism from the other side, too. Because I'm like, man, they could just as easily go the other way. Like, how the fuck are you going to get there? You know, like, good luck. <laughs> yeah. There's all sorts of ways that a reformist project could be foiled. You could get some some liars in there. You could just keep compromising till you don't know who you are anymore. I mean, look look at all the the brouhaha that was made over these like quote unquote progressive senators we had for a minute there. Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck are they doing? Like, look where they all are on Israel. Yeah, they're all except for like one person. <laughs> How many of them voted for that? You know, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, like take a fucking look. You know, like. There's professional liars out there. <laughs> yeah. So that to me drove home the importance of, of, you know, staying true to the goal. I'm not even going to say the party because, you know, if your party gets so watered down, eventually it's just like, who fuck it? That just means you live here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I don't know. To me, that makes it more like um, maybe an importance of if you're going to do a party, an importance of party discipline. You know, if you're taking a Marxist-Leninist approach and everything, what, yeah, why do you have a party if fucking all these types that we were just talking about can be in it? Yeah. Uh, Versus, yeah, if you're taking more of a, you know, you don't have to deal with this. I think if you're doing an anarcho-communist approach or something, you just, you can tell people, well, that's why you don't have a party because assholes like that. And so maybe this is a weakness of ours. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I'm viewing it from a point of, like, how important is the label at a certain point? Or, like, like I guess, again, like, I think we've talked about this before, is is I just want a big sign on the back that says no capitalism. 
And like every meeting, everything we do, we have to look back at that sign and be like, all right, guys, does this live up to our standards? Okay, cool. Moving on. You know, like, and, and if anyone says something that does not align with those standards, like, hey, you need to fucking leave. <laughs> okay, so you want to purge them? I, yeah, I'm going to fucking purge. Purge all the way, baby. All right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, that's what I'm coming away from it is, is some, you know, we're not talking shoot somebody. Rivers of blood. We're just saying, <laughs> kick them out the party. Kick them out. They don't get to hang out with you if they're for capitalism, which, like, if you're listening to this show... And you've been listening to the show, you're probably anti. And you're like, hmm, maybe <laughs> capitalism. It's kind of good. You know, we can do I'm like a confused as to how you ended capitalist up here. communism or something like that. Like, no, dude, you're wrong. A, no. you're wrong. B, you're wrong. C, you're wrong. D, get out. Get the fuck out. <laughs> what are you doing here? You're at the wrong meeting. The asshole club is down the street. Please actually don't go there. We would prefer you yeah, to. <laughs> actually, just listen to like the rest of our episodes. And maybe you'll change your mind, you know? I think I view it from like a, I don't give a shit what the party is called and how many of them are there are as long as they are working together i guess like if you want to have a little ancom faction go for it yeah like we're talking about in um in like nepal and everything you know Mm -hmm. and nepal in in the movie pride with like the the gay and lesbian groups kind of split off yeah like i don't give a shit how many of there you are as long as you show up for each other and that thing is on the back of of your meeting hall that says no capitalism, no racism. <laughs> like here's the here's the big rules, you know. <laughs> it's got like one of those countdown things. It's like this many days since revisionist infiltration or something. <laughs> yeah, like I think that has to be there. I, I think if you, it, it's I can understand the temptation. I can understand like everything they're up against. I mean, another thing that this makes me think of is is like kind of the idea of like global communism and stuff like that too, because like. Again, we stated the topic how much the Soviet Union was against, yeah. you know, what they were up against. And when you have that, it is very tempting to look across the pond and say, well, that guy is way more shit than me. And it's it's very tempting to believe the narratives that other people are, are writing about you and, and telling you and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that the whole thing is avoided if you have a world revolution at that point, right? That's the yeah. If you if they had more more allies on the stage that had resources to help them, if they weren't just the big helper guy, <laughs> and they had other people to lean on him and say, "Hey, it's cool. Like, we'll give you an aid package that isn't gonna fuck you. Like, it's cool. We're gonna share resources. Stay the course. You know." Yeah, but instead, I mean, they're having to not only try to keep up with this huge imperialist power as the main adversary, try to help all of their allies around the world you know liberate themselves and everything and try to fend off infiltration at home not just like the the domestic kind of you know situation of yeah we don't get to have as many liberties because we're constantly on the lookout for cia machinations but how much of an expenditure you know uh dwight eisenhower famously said that every dollar put put toward the military is a failure because it's a dollar that we couldn't put towards education in the United yeah. States. You know, I mean, like this former warmonger and whatever was saying this, you know, on his way out the door <laughs> yeah, as a president. Right. But like Oops. the same is true in the Soviet Union. And these guys had to yeah. pay so much in terms of military expenditure. And one of the popular, I think, tropes of Western historiography of the fall of the Soviet Union is, well, Reagan outspent them and made them lose all the. I, th- I think our story did a good job of kind of showing like. Mainly it was their own problems and the ill-fated attempts to try to fix those problems. But I think that one of the, you know, one of the 
sandbags around their neck was that amount of money they couldn't spend towards their own production of their own shit. And maybe they would have squandered it all the same with, you know, Gorbachev would have been like, well, let's privatize that too, you know, fine. <laughs> but I think another setback they had was, like you're saying with this whole being isolated as a social nation sort of thing, is having to be constantly guns at the ready, all out defense against, you know, this fanatical nation hell bent on your destruction. Yeah, I mean, like, think about, yeah, they didn't have to upkeep a massive nuclear missile program or, you know, the space race is fucking cool, so we can keep that. <laughs> but, like, like think about an episode of the Americans. They're always getting, like, new gear and shit. You're like, how the fuck? Like, you had to ship that? You had to do so much shit to get that over there. Mm-hmm. Like, that's obviously an extreme example of espionage, but, like, they had an extensive espionage program. That shit ain't cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was, like necessary for survival it was and that's another aspect of siege socialism is you have to have you have to deform your national priorities to suit the terrible conditions that you find yourself in these survival conditions of because it's in same way in a siege people aren't supposed to boil wallpaper off of the walls to eat to consume any of the like nutrients they can get off of it or like you know or boil their shoes to chew on the leather or anything like that. Like, that's not normal, but you have to do that in a siege condition. You know, you have to eat rats and and eat your horses and shit. That's the same thing with siege socialism, is your society ends up doing shit it's not supposed to have to do because of these assholes. Yeah, I think we all learned a lot. I think you learned, based on uh, the Zoom window, how bad I am at yo-yoing, because I was doing that (laughs) all the time. Pretty impressive. Really? Okay, because I was pretty bad, I think. Uh, I think it's a, it's a good option though. I need like a stim while we do this and it seems to be mostly quiet. So <laughs> we'll see while I edit. Maybe it's a terrible stim and I need to just no, fucking didn't work. learn how to be still. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. Okay. Well, thank you. I know that was a fuck ton of work. So thank you for putting that together. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. It was, it was cool. It was a, it was a cool rabbit hole. Uh, I mean, a rabbit <laughs> burrow. I don't know. It was a ton it's a whole warren or whatever yeah there you go <laughs> I was like, what is it called next week we're we're shooting that shit shooting that shit um patreon people who like the notes the notes will be a little bit delayed because i need to like organize them a little bit better than i have here i was just running off of yep so uh <laughs> give me like till the weekend or something but sounds good okay we'll talk to y'all later all right see ya Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up and coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to 
local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes. So check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.